Welcome to They Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, guys. How are you doing today? Doing good. Just trying to survive uh, all the temperature changes we're having here, where I think it'll probably snow next week, and it's going to be probably 70 today, and my allergies aren't going to take it. But beyond that, pretty good. (laughs) Okay, then we found our theme. Then uh, this is the allergy episode. Yeah, I'm like it's killing me right now. I have I have no allergies. <laughs> There's only like all. I mean, it, isn't it like in Ireland? It's either feels pretty okay, but it's cloudy, or it's cold. Like, isn't that like the two modes? And it's never even really that cold. You know, we're just we're just constantly meh. You know, like the coldest we'll get in the winter. I had to put this into American money. I'm gonna to need to convert this. Hold on. I, I can sort of do it, like in my head. If like give a rough estimate, if you say it in Celsius, like in the winter time, if it's a really bad winter, it will get down to like maybe two or three degrees Celsius. Okay. I mean, that's, so that's like a forty. And then in the summertime, generally speaking, if it's a good summer the average day will be like 20 to 25 you might get a week where it's like 30 and those are the weeks where i die <laughs> that, that's like so 28 is 82 i remember that that's one conversion that i have just in my head 28 is 82 okay um, so so that means that you're doing basically like it, that's not that hot but that's because you don't have ac anywhere right no big office buildings and stuff sometimes but in homes no we don't yeah that's really hot then. we don't Love need you. it yeah. So the yeah. fun fact, I'll step out there. Negative 10 is the same in both Fahrenheit and Celsius. Yeah, you heard it here first. Yeah, it's how the only the temperature is, that's the same between both. How does the maths work for that? Is there not like a set difference or is it done on percentages or something? It's not a set. So difference. the conversion is nine fifths plus 32. And what? somehow that is, so that is the stupid. negative 10. That is the conversion between Fahrenheit and Celsius. I always just assumed it was just like a set figure. Mm-hmm. No, no, there's there's ah. an actual math formula for it. Why? What's the point? I, I, Why do I you guys ruin everything? Hey, it's Vietnam too. It's not just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be fair, I think I think we're actually one of the few places that still use Celsius. I think most of the world has changed to Fahrenheit. Um, like Unless I remember you're in science, because science it's exclusively Celsius. Yeah. Right. I okay. I don't know if that's true. Out of all respect, I think I think America's holding out on this, like. We, we, need, we just need to get to the metric system and just need to get to Celsius and just like stop pretending that we do things better here. When it comes see, to I just this. remember, I just have a clear recollection as a, on my first holiday to Spain as a child, I think I might've been maybe like eight or nine and we landed in Spain and Barcelona and the pilot was like, and outside it's 100 degrees. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to die. It's 100 <laughs> Because I was just going off Celsius, so uh, <laughs> that boiling. sounded insane. <laughs> it's, it's that literally boiling temperature that sounded absolutely insane to me. So uh, that that was that's where my assumption on on the world using Fahrenheit comes from. So I very much could be wrong in that. I, I'm not an expert in the, in that I, field. I don't know if this is a just an old urban legend. It may be, but I've heard it my whole life. The reason that you one of the reasons the U.S. hasn't went to the metric system is because Jefferson was interested in it. And he actually, but he's like, I'm not going to change the metric system unless I know what a kilogram is. So he ordered a weight that was a kilogram to come in so he could start the conversion. And it got lost in transit from overseas, like on a ship. And he just said, ah, fuck it. It's not meant to be. 
<laughs> yeah. It just never changed. That's how most Americans make decisions. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> I'm okay with that description. Brilliant. Well, well, look, we'll get cracking on the episode anyway. So it's kind of a weird episode. I don't really know how to call this episode without like sounding like like I'm underselling the importance. But this is basically the racism episode. <laughs> yeah. yep. You know, it's a, it's a weird way to talk about it, but it's it is basically we're talking we talk about two films that, that deal, you know, with with people who are subjected to racism and xenophobia and are basically outcasted by society because of their differences. Uh, so the first film we're going to talk about is a 1980 film from the UK called Babylon, directed by a guy called Franco Rosso, an Italian, um, but made, made this film in the UK. Um, for those who are unaware of Babylon, which to be fair, it's kind of an obscurish film. I wouldn't be too surprised if, if you hadn't heard of it. I, I certainly hadn't when I got picked for the film club. Uh, but the movie centers around uh, Brindley Ford's character, Blue. He fronts a reggae sound system based in southwest London. And the film captures the trials and tribulations of young black youths in troubled London in the early 80s. I remember actually one part about this film that we talked about, and that is uh, Fuck Margaret Thatcher. Uh, so now we can talk <laughs> about the actual we can talk about the actual film. Now. I just wanted to get that out of the way real quick. <laughs> just like a little bit of Tourette's for like uh, Ireland, right? Like, got to point it out. Fuck Margaret Thatcher. Just every now and again, you just say it. And, uh, and, everyone, and everyone around you agrees. So that's nice. <laughs> well, it's like a greeting. Um, yeah. What, this what do we think of Babylon, Chris? This was your choice, wasn't it? When you wasn't this yeah, your poll? It was. Yeah, I wanted to take advantage of the reggae films that they had on the channel that were leaving. I think, um, or maybe they're still there. Anyways, um, so this is a this is an interesting movie if you think about the, kind of the makeup of it. So the world ranks it as the five thousand one hundred and thirty third best movie. So it's kind of you know, it's it's well thought of by the people who know it, I guess, but it's not. It's certainly not on a lot of critics' list. Um, and uh, Franco Rosso is not a Jamaican. Um, you know, I think I'm pretty sure he wasn't even British. I'm pretty sure he was Italian. He was right? Italian. Yes, he was. He was indeed Italian. And like actively Italian, not like an Italian living in Britain. But I'm pretty sure he was like like you know from Italy, right? Yeah, um, yeah. No, he was like legit an Italian guy. Like he he didn't make a ton, like to be honest. I'm pretty sure this is like his only feature film. Maybe, maybe he had another one, but he was mainly like documentarians and TV movies, that kind of stuff. But yeah, he was like he, yeah, he was he was an Italian dude. Which yeah. feels appropriate, right? Because I mean, like with a lot of Italian filmmakers, it seems like they transplant in a lot of other areas, especially in Europe. Like, you know, you look at the spaghetti Westerns being filmed in Spain and yeah. other parts. It just, it, you know, it's, it's so common for them. And I, I couldn't even speculate the reason why, but that seems to be a big thing in Italy. Maybe go where the money is. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting that this, you know, guy from Italy makes a movie about racial tension in London, um, focused on a population of black Jamaicans and, um, and and their relationship with the British when they were living there. And, the, you know, there's a couple elements to this movie. There's also the criminal element we can get into, which I think is an interesting kind of nuance here. But, but just at a high level, the fact that the movie was made in this way, you know, that there's certainly a risk when you go into this of having maybe like a, kind of like an Anglo perspective on the whole thing or like, 
just uh, maybe romanticizing certain elements of like black culture, you know, you see it sometimes where like, that's a big critique of black Orpheus, for example, right. Where this French guy comes in and kind of romanticizes like the favelas in, in Brazil, right. Mm -hmm. He makes it seem like it's fun to live in, in like the poorest parts of the city. Yeah. Um, into a fantasy kind of world. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I think there's a risk of that, but I don't think that Russell really did that. Like, I think he, at, at least from, again, as speaking as a white person, I want to be a little careful, but it felt like he was probably trying to be very authentic and let the characters uh, and, and these, you know, actors who were actually musicians in real life, some of them uh, kind of help create this story and tell this story and make it something that they were happy with. I think it shows up in, the language like they use the patois that they use um i think it shows up in the way that he doesn't portray them as perfect um he portrays them as kind of nuanced characters like real characters who struggle with their family and struggle with the community and and, and you know so like i i don't know like i kind of really love this movie like i think if you're gonna have a mostly white <laughs> crew come in and from from italy come in and make a movie like this I feel like it was handled with the appropriate amount of nuance. And I think the topics that he wanted to sort of address really br were, were brought up. I mean, especially when he starts getting in some of the Rastafari stuff. So I, yeah, like, I don't know. I think I, it, it kind of passes that test for me uh, of trying to, you know, pay respect to the subject matter you're filming and not putting a too much of an Anglo kind of lens on it. And uh, I, I personally love reggae. So I love the movie for a lot of different reasons, but yeah, that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but that's <laughs> that's my that's my uh, intro to Babylon. What about you, Zach? Um, so this movie has a bit of a interesting thing for me from where I work in juvenile probation. Um, I think I've mentioned that on here before. I work with I work with kids who have entered the criminal justice system in one way or the other. Um, we actually get reports. I want to say every quarter, if I remember correctly, where of course we are always attempting to analyze things like are we being more harsh to one race versus another are we more or less harsh on different genders and the statewide and this is for statewide and this is this is a big thing and it gets a of course we do a thing uh where the issue we have in my state which i won't take too long is the east side of the state and the west side of the state are very different on how they do things and our job is to try to make that one but that's a whole other topic but there's a lot of stuff that goes in this report but it is very interesting in working with kids of different races in general of how you handle them and how and you know it, it brings a lot of that in here and i think there's a lot of true to life here um we'll get in more in the specifics of the movie but like you know there's the scene where he's kind of window shopping um you know, just kind of not even window shopping. He's just walking down the street and he's looking in. He starts getting chased, has no idea it's the police, and he's arrested for running from the police. And that's stuff that does have a lot of relevancy. Um, he's looked at differently for doing that versus what someone else could do. And I think it's very interesting. And I think it's a nuance that is something else. Yeah, they're doing maybe some petty stuff, but nothing that would, you know, really recall anything beyond even small reprimands at this point, but not full out arrested and put into the system and things such as that. Um, so I, I thought, you know, from that lens, I thought it was, I think it's incredibly fascinating. It's one I've gotten to think about how long ago did we watch this? Like a month ago? It's been a while now. Yeah. When I had COVID. So about, about a month, about four or five weeks ago. Yeah, so it's a, it's a movie that stayed with me, and I think that says a lot, you know, with that much time has passed, and it's, you know, I, I feel like it has a lot of 
um, interesting interesting areas it's exploring. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you guys. I thought it was fantastic. I think out of all the films we've watched over maybe like last six or seven weeks, it was probably my favorite. Um, I do have a couple of ranked higher, but those are films I'd already seen. So of all like the film first time watches I've had from the club in the last sort of six, seven weeks, this was this was definitely my favorite. Um, I agree with you, Chris, even though, again, we're talking from an outsider perspective, you know, as, as sort of white people. And, you know, if we didn't grow up in England in the 80s, you know, we don't really know for sure how it was, but it feels very authentic. Um, yeah. Both from the actual filmmaking point of view, it has that kind of uh, French New Wave kind of looseness uh, to it. It's not very sort of strictly choreographed or photographed or anything like that. It does have that, that looseness to it, that almost documentary uh, style to it. And then also from the fact, as we said, you know, with the the characters all being portrayed by people who were sort of growing up. I don't doubt they probably had a large involvement with crafting their character. Right. Um, and obviously the, 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 uh, the lingo, the dialogue that they used, uh, was it Pichua? Is that who? Pichua? Yeah. yeah that, that sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that dialect that they sort yeah. of speak in um, that without subtitles, you would probably have a hard time understanding. I, I, I definitely, would have had a hard time without the subtitles uh, even with the subtitles there was some sentences where I'm like I think I know what they mean when they say that um, but it's yeah it's, it's it's a look at a period of time and a very specific group of people that you don't often see um, you know there's a marginalized group of people you know first second third generation immigrants into the UK Ironically enough, all would have been original byproducts of the slave trade, you know, bringing people, you know, to Jamaica and other British colonies and in the Caribbean, and they then come come to England hoping for a better life. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of deeply ingrained sort of hurt and sort of pain from that ancestral stuff still kind of rings through. They're still treated like absolute dirt by the majority of the white people they come across in this film um and you know zach mentioned it as well how you know during scenes like when the especially when the police you know chase them for no real reason and stuff it fucking sucks that this is still so relevant today um and i feel like i say that with every film that involves racism and it's it's more and more frustrating that you that we that I you know keep having to say how relevant that you know this stuff is today. You know, the world's the world's a very broken place. Um but I don't I don't just wanna I don't just wanna focus on the racial aspect. I think Babylon is also an excellent um an excellent celebrator of of that culture, especially the music side of things and the rest of the rest of the rest of the Rastafarian. Rastafarian, that's it. Yeah, the Rastafarian culture and stuff yeah. like that. I think it is also a very good celebration and an insight into that side of the world as well. So um, I think it, it, it works great on two angles, both celebrating, you know, dub music, you know, the music that they, that they do, which is sort of like an electronic version of reggae, uh, the dub music, uh, the, Rastafari, the Rastafarianism, and also, you know, the, the other side of the coin, the xenophobia and the hardships that they were put through for, for no reason at all, other than the fact that they, you know, were, were black. 
Yeah. There's a, there's even a scene where um, there, one of the spiritual scenes when I think it's blue is walking and um, he, he kind of comes across that group playing music on the street. And there's like that, that leader that's, that's dressed in Ethiopian colors who becomes mm, yeah. almost like a spiritual guide to him of sorts. Yeah. They're, they're playing the drums and it's mostly just drums. And that's the, the, the Naya Bingi drums. So that's like, that's the, the music that sort of helped create reggae. Like, like they, they knew these Naya Bingi drums were drums from Africa. And some people started like kind of getting into that rhythm and then sort of adding music on top of it in different ways. And that became reggae. So there's like a ton of history just like baked into this movie. Uh, and which I think is interesting, uh, even the fact that he's wearing Ethiopia uh, colors, like, you know, there's a direct tie in Rastafarian to, to Ethiopia because they believe that this, this guy named Haile Selassie was the reincarnation of kind of like the Messiah, like the Christ figure. He came back to save the world and, and to bring back this kind of racial harmony and to bring, uh, yeah, to save the world. I mean, like they thought the Messiah came back basically and they there's some that still believe he didn't die and it's like a central part of that religion. So, um there's just a lot of respect paid like to the detail behind um, this journey that, that these characters are going through um, that I, I don't know, I, I really liked, I guess. Um, I thought it was handled really well. And it's, yeah, it's very respectful um, of, especially the fact that, like we said, you know, this was written and directed by, you know, a white Italian man. Mm-hmm. Obviously I don't know too much about him. He may have, you know, you know, had closeness to that culture, you know, he could have been friends or, partners with someone who is a part of that culture but for some you know for someone who who wrote this and directed this as an outsider um it is it's very sort of respectful of that culture i watched um i watched i walked with a zombie recently enough uh, i don't know if you guys have seen that one the jacques tournier film and that's very respectful of voodoo uh, especially for a film made in like i think it was like the 40s you know you'd expect it to be very sort of uh you know racially iffy when it comes to depicting, uh, you know, Jamaican voodoo or, or no, Haitian voodoo, sorry. Um, but it wasn't, it was very respectful um, in terms of like, there was, there was clearly a lot of, uh, a lot of research done, you know, prior to sort of filming and writing certain scenes. And I feel like the same was done here as well. It's, it's very respectful. It doesn't try and, um, doesn't try and, you know, what's the, I can't think of the right word here, but um trivialize it it doesn't try and trivialize their their sort of beliefs and their religion and stuff like that mm-hmm. um just on the aspect of, before we go too too much deeper into the into the you know the horrible things that happen in this film just want to touch on um the music a little bit um because during the spirited away episode i talked about how much i enjoyed you know the music and that um and I had a similar sort of feeling with this film. I, I really enjoyed the music that came that came through. I don't have a massive um, experience with, you know, dub or reggae music. I do have one particular story that I can tell if we have time about my my only one time that I experienced sort of dub music sort of live. Um, but I don't I don't think we've ever really talked too much about our sort of musical tastes or anything like that. Chris, I know you're a big punk fan. I know you've brought that up before, but I don't think we've talked too much about you know, our own sort of music that we like and, you know, if we like the music in this film. So I'll start. Um, this is definitely far and away what I would normally listen to. I did enjoy it in the film. 
uh, wouldn't be something <laughs> I necessarily go out and listen to on my own. Uh, a lot of mine, uh, I listen to growing up as a teenager, and I still have a lot of this I still listen to now. I listen to a lot of grunge. I grew up in the 90s, so, you know, I listen to Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam, uh, Nirvana. That, that was Green Day, if we go into the punk era. I listen to a lot of that. Uh, most of what I listen to now, though, is a lot of folksy type stuff, stuff I never thought I would listen to, but kind of the main thing now. Um, of course, I'll, any if, if it's country, it's old country. I listen to a lot of Hank Williams Jr. I listen to um, uh, Johnny Cash, of course, stuff like that, Willie Nelson. Um, but yeah, so not not my thing, but I enjoyed listening to it. You know, it didn't, you know, I'm not going to be one of those people who says, well, it's just noise, but because, I mean, it's pretty cool. I, see, I definitely see the appeal. What was the singer for Stone Temple Pilots? What was his name? Oh, God. Scott you're Weiland. Scott Thank Weiland. you. I was Weiland. like, I'm going to have to Google it. I can't remember. He was. He always had one of my favorite voices. I love the way that guy would growl and kind of like uh, when he really got excited. I think he had a great voice. I have a friend who makes fun of me all the time because of my love for Pearl Jam. Because he just says like, you can't understand things like you can once you've like conditioned yourself to it makes sense i was about to say like everything every pearl jam song is just just like every pearl jam song i I have no fucking idea what i can't remember his name actually i guess that's my version of screamo like it's like (laughs) no one can understand it it's like but i can understand eddie vetter though eddie vetter is the voice of an angel though i love that guy's voice oh my gosh and then my favorite one from that era do you remember the guy chris cornell i think from soundgarden yeah Oh man, if that voice was a woman, I'd marry it in like a second. <laughs> yeah, he, um, he had an incredible voice. I'm not a big grunge guy, but I can sort of respect. I, I respect the craft. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, Chris Cornell had a had a quite an incredible it, voice. It was an interesting snapshot into like the late '80s, early '90s, like grunge music, and like its lasting effect, but how it also just kind of stayed there. So it's kind of weird in that way. Yeah, it's very much a time capsule genre. One of those I, kind of burden in my hand. That's the song. You know that song, burden in my hand from Soundgarden. Is like I lost my head again. Like that. The way he sings that song. I remember I was like, so I used to listen to a lot of top forty radio and like build Legos. <laughs> That's about how old I was. I was like <laughs> 11, 12 and I would just have like top forty radio on. Uh, and maybe that was even like slightly later. I can't remember exactly when it came out, but. Uh, as Soundgarden, as a lot of this grunge music started coming on, I remember I liked it. It was nice to have in the background or whatever. But when that song came on, I like stopped what I was doing and I like had to find it. I like had to figure out like who this guy was and who this band was. Um, anyways. Oh. I, before we, uh, for the grunge thing, I had him, you saw the Batman recently. How'd you feel about having to hear that same Nirvana song about it? Uh, yeah, I literally, I literally saw it last <laughs> night. I saw Batman last night. Um, you know, the song's fine. Was is that from that must be from their their MTV unplugged session or something? Was that it's either that... that one or it's in, I don't think it's in in utero, uh, utero. I don't think it's in that one. I just because I don't know if they because there was like vi- there was like a string section at some point. It was kind of acoustic, yeah. so I just assumed it was from unplugged. But I have Which, no idea. That, that, that not... unplugged is awesome. That's that's one of my favorites from them. But I have to, yeah. I can't remember if they did it in that one or not. Yeah, um, like I, they did I'm a lot not... of covers in that one. Right. Yeah, I'm not a big I'm not a big Nirvana guy. I was when I first got into like rock music when I was like 13. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't call myself a big Nirvana guy. What annoyed me, just to do a quick segue on the Batman, I, pro- I promise we'll go back to Babylon. <laughs> I saw everyone was like bigging up the score in, in the Batman. I was like, oh, the main team is so good. The main theme is just Imperial March, just kind of slow. I mean, it is. It's I, just I will... a 
it's the Darth Vader music, but just a little bit slower. And I was like, is this it? This is just the Darth Vader music. This is just din, 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 din. <laughs> but like they took one of the notes out. That's I I, I liked uh I, I wasn't really when I talk about the music, it's for me it was more like uh I think there was one called like in the anger zone and stuff like that, which a lot of it's using uh the progression. I, I guess the word is progression from the something in the way. Obviously they knew they were yeah. gonna use that because that's in there. But I like Giacchino. Maybe it's where I'm not, you know, I kind of like him more than Zimmer. So I kind of put him a little bit more on a pedestal in the recent years. Yeah, look, I, I, had no, I, I had no overarching issue. Well, I could talk about my issues with the Batman for a while. So that's not. Uh, let's <laughs> we'll say that for any other business, right? Per, perhaps we will. Perhaps we will. I don't, I don't have anything prepped as of right now. So perhaps I will save that for any other businesses. I do have a couple of issues with it. Um, well, <laughs> so back, back, back to Babylon, maybe. Yeah, just quickly, I'll say I love rebel music. I've always been drawn to rebel music. So that's one of the reasons I got into punk. I love it when the lyrics are fighting against something. I, I think there's, and I'm part of it was because I've always been an activist, but I also just like passion in the music. I love it when there's, it's like a personal song. Um, and that applies to most genres. It doesn't have to be reggae. It doesn't have to be punk. Um, uh, I, I just like these like one of my favorite punk bands is a Canadian group called Propaganda. And it's just the, every single song, there's like an anger to it. And the guy's, I mean, he's probably in his fifties now, but he still finds things to be passionately angry about. And uh, it, it's always impressed me that he's been able to maintain that, that passion for so long. Uh, but it is one of the reasons I'm drawn to reggae. I think there's something behind it that is usually like either celebrating the culture and the religion uh, and trying to make Rastafari like something personal with the whole like I and I and I and I, you know, like very tied into this like collective we kind of like we're doing this together. Or then it's talking about the oppression and the, and the difficulties of, of living in Jamaica in that time. Um, so, yeah, that's been. And then the other thing I like is if you give me a syncopated rhythm, I'm yours. Okay. Like, have you all ever, you all know this, this genre kind of called math rock? Yeah. like yeah. all day long if it's fast and chaotic but there's there's a there's a, a, a like a meaning to it like there's the, the, it kind of makes sense like i'm right there so that's that's my big uh before we talk about babylon quickly what are you adam what what's what's your uh, style bonus um, point if you say your own music <laughs> uh, um, well look i i'm definitely in zach's field i'm like i wouldn't go out of my way to listen to reggae or dub um i will tell my my quick dub story in a moment but generally speaking i don't want to sound like boring but i, I genuinely am one of those guys who kind of listens to everything i'm i'm very much more a case where i'm not picky with my genre but i'm very picky with my artist so like i can't say i'm a big hip-hop fan but I am a huge like Kendrick Lamar fan or, or Wu-Tang Clan. You know, I like, I like very, I, I very much love very specific artists within genres yeah. or math rock. I can't say I'm a big math rock fan, but I really like American football. So, you know, there's very specific artists and genres that I really like. So I can't really call myself a particular genre fan. Like growing up, I was mainly into rock and punk. Uh, I was a big pop punk fan. So a big fallout boy fan here. I still listen to Fall Out Boy all the time because they're awesome. Um, Can't let it go. (laughs) But only their old stuff. Only their old stuff. Uh, None of of that new shit. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm a good Charlotte type of guy. 
I don't know why you just come uh, yeah, off. I didn't mind. Yeah, good Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. I would have listened to good Charlotte a bit when I was like fifteen. Yeah, I would have been... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, I would have listened to a good bit of good Charlotte. Um, I can't say I can't say I know what they're doing nowadays, but um, yeah, I would have I would have listened to a good bit of good Charlotte, Blink One Eighty Two, Fallout Boy, Paramore, those kind of groups. Uh, would oh, Paramore would... was great. I didn't even I hadn't thought about them in a while. Yeah, I would listen to those a lot as a teenager, obviously less so now, you know, if I'm turning on something now, it's probably Kendrick Lamar or Radiohead or Bon Iver, stuff like that. So very different stuff. <laughs> I've named three, three very different artists, but um, I'm, I'm more into that kind of stuff these days. Um, but just just with dub. So like I didn't even know like dub was a thing. I, I'd never heard of dub at all. And then about I want to say maybe about five years ago when I was but maybe maybe longer now maybe about six or seven uh it was when i was in my early 20s um there was this um there was this there was this music venue in the city i lived in in waterford in ireland and it was a cool venue i used to play there a bit on like open mic nights and stuff um but they used to put on like all kinds of shows it was all very off the beaten pack kind of stuff um and one night uh, i got a a text message from one of my buddies and he's like you want to come down to uh, Central Arts? That was the venue. Come down to Central Arts. There's a there's a dub night going on. It's bring your own beer and whatever. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea what dub is. I know he's he was very much a, a techno guy. He was into like electronic music, techno, that kind of stuff. So I just assumed it was going to be like dance music night. So I was like, all right, I'll it. I'll come down, and uh, you know, I'll just I'll bring a few beers and I'll I'll just chill out and you know meet some people. And I went in. And I was like, what is this music? Because it was like, it sounds like reggae, but it's not. It's like, there's like, there's like electronic beats behind it. It's very bassy. And next thing, like, there's these people sort of like just shouting, like, oh, I'm talking over. And I'm like, this is nuts. And then like the main act of the night, this dude called Rastilly. I'll never forget him until the day I die. He was just, he was huge. I'd say he was about seven foot tall. Uh, <laughs> Jamaican guy, the big, you know, the, you know, the big hat that the Rastafarians wear. Yep, you know a big like you know proper like Ethiopian garb, sort of similar to the character that we see in the film. It's just like this big tall dude, and he played for about an hour, and it was just it was it was one of the best nights I've ever had like at a music venue, because everyone was just so chill. Like I'm not gonna lie, the place absolutely stunk of weed. <laughs> you know, it was it was the place I, I came home like I'm, I'm not a I'm not a, a weed guy or anything like that and I came home stinking of, of marijuana <laughs> uh, but it was just everyone was so chill and just like quietly just like bopping away to this music and it was just it was insane it was one of the best nights I've ever had and like but like I can't say I've ever sat down and listened to dub music ever again because I just I don't want to kind of taint the memory of that night that I had you know it's just something that I feel like would be much better live than it would be, you know, sitting in, at home with your headphones on kind of a thing. It's, it's more of an experience, if that makes sense. Um, Cheaper to get so the second hand than it is to go recreate that experience yourself. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Uh, so yeah, that's my experience with dub music. And it was, it was really fun to sort of hear that and sort of watch that. Because that, that scene at the end, you know, when they're at the dub venue, like that's literally what <laughs> that night was like, minus the, the cops coming and shutting it down, obviously. Um, but that, that was very much a recreation of what it was like, you know, people just just sort of embracing, you know, the, the message being being shouted across the mic with this really cool music. So this is one thing I really liked about the movie. I kind of want to, maybe it's a great tie into what you just said. So maybe, you know, at first I thought this was a critique of mine from the movie because the 
but but I think I think I've come around on this in the few weeks since we've seen it. So the kids, like the main sort of point of the movie is that these kids are just trying to perform their music live for like get ready for a competition, right? And in order to support that desire to like go compete and be the best, they 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 get they steal some sound equipment, right? Um, and I think one of the guys even gets involved a little bit in like the criminal kind of underworld and, and beats somebody up for money, some of these kind of things. But like the majority of them are just fully in it for getting ready for this competition and being the best uh, reggae group in the city, right? As, as judged by this competition. Um, and at first I thought that was like, maybe like kind of a loose, maybe not, not a very strong premise to build this movie off of. Um, but then the more I thought about it, I actually really love it because I think it kind of puts us in the mindset of where a lot of 18, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old kids are, right? Or maybe early twenties. Like <clears throat> usually your focus is much more narrow in life at that time. And like, it makes sense that if you're really into music and you want to be known as like a musician, that probably is your whole life, right? And every chance you get, you're sneaking away with your friends to go to like some old warehouse and like put on a record and, and just like, you know, bullshit for an hour or three hours and like wake up the neighbors with the music. Like that is, it's very true to being like a teenager or like a young adult with like a very singular focus. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually think the more I kind of like just reflect on the movie, I think that's actually a strength of it in a way because I think it adds an innocence to like a lot of what the kids are doing. Um, Cause they're just young kids that like, they just, you know, they play their music too loud. They do get involved in small crime to, to get ready for this comp. But other than that, they're extremely relatable. They're friendly. They're, they love to joke around. Like they're just kids. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I think that came across very well in the, in the movie. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, it's, it's that idea of, you know, when you're young and you want to be, you know, you want to make it, you know, that yeah. kind of way. It, you sort of, you see it, you know, in, in other sort of media, maybe about like, you know, a young band, they're just trying to make it, they're trying to get the record deal or, you know, they're, they're trying to get signed or trying to play one awesome show, that kind of thing. And this is kind of different because they're not so much in it for the monetary aspect, they're not really doing it to, to get signed by a major label. It's much more a pride aspect. Yeah. You know, they, they want to be respected and they want to, they want to um, show pride in their ability to showcase their music and also their connectedness to sort of Rasta, Rastafarianism in general, you know, to be able to, you know, maybe be, be the best at that. So it's kind of, it's kind of different in one respect because the end game is kind of different. They're, they're not doing it to, to get signed by that major label to get that record deal or whatever. They're, they're doing it because they want to be the best at what they do and at something that's so integral to their community. Yeah. There's, if this was a Hollywood movie, there would be an agent in that, in that show that was like watching them being like, oh, they're good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they would, every sentence would be like, we just got to make it, man. We're going to get signed by a major label, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it was some shitty fucking 80s movie, you know, like, <laughs> or even like something like fucking Rock of Ages, you know, that, that kind of shit. See, uh, I was going to reference uh, Back to the Future. Okay. Yeah, where, yeah. Where it's like, it doesn't work for you, but your, your parents, your, your kids, they're going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, again, it's, it's a very, like, yes, absolutely, that's, their end game is to put on a kick-ass show, but it's not to get signed. It's to, it's to get the respect of their peers and you know have pride in their, in their abilities, which is cool. It's, it's, 
it's something that you don't get a lot of these days because now everyone kind of has a, a monetary end game. You know, people right. are people are less interested in putting on a great show for the sake of putting on a great show. It's so that they can get the clout to, you know, get the money. You know, that's what it's kind of all about. It's, you know, people sell out and stuff. You know, I know I know a lot of people personally, even in the music scene, who don't listen to the type of music that they play. They're doing it because they're hoping to get signed and get some money, you know, and whatever. Like that's that you do you. That's fine. You know, if you're OK compromising your own sort of vision, then you do you. But Babylon is a film of people where that wouldn't even come into their heads to, to compromise their vision in hopes of, you know, getting signed by a label or whatever. Yeah, there's that reminds me of a. Uh, I there was a. Do you remember this old British band called Gang of Four? Yeah. So yeah, I got to see them. They had they had a reunion tour uh, maybe 15 years ago or some roughly, and I got to see them. And when you speak about passion behind the music, it was like this out of body experience because even into his 50s or 60s, the guy, the singer, like he got into the music and wound up breaking his guitar on stage. Some of the stuff that they were kind of famous for when they were. 19 or whatever and it just felt like so real that like they never like nothing had ever changed they were in it for like the passion you know i, I don't know it was, it was a great experience yeah gang of four one of those groups from from that sort of post-punk era that definitely never sort of sold out or anything like that um that would have been cool to see them live i think maybe the guitarist or maybe the singer maybe both i think died a couple of years ago um yeah sorry uh you you said that he died recently I think someone in the band died. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if it was him, the singer, or whether it was just a guitarist or something. But I, no. yeah, I know someone in the group died recently enough. Yeah. But anyways, I mean, that, and there's a lot of bands like that, that, you know, um, Fugazi is another, um, that, you know, sort of like everything they do was was from passion. I mean, they're still living, but that, that, that era kind of brought up a lot of music. And I think there's another, you know, for kind of going between genres here. Did you know, or do you remember a few years back when Three Six Mafia won an Academy Award? Um, no. It was amazing. Like, go back, if, if, if you have a second, like, go back and watch this video, because here's this, like, you know, hip-hop group that's known for being very rebellious and having, like, some really kind of extreme lyrics and just, like, but they're actually very talented musicians, and they, for the, for the soundtrack for a movie, they won an Academy Award uh, for the score, excuse me, and when they got on stage, they were, like, they were like little kids. They were so, they couldn't believe that they were being recognized in this really like black tie, white environment. And yeah. it was like this authentic joy that you don't really see on stage that much. It was like the sweetest, like all I wanted them to do was win another 10 Academy Awards because you could see it. Like every part of their body was just like, we're like, we're here. Like, like there was no pretense. It was amazing. So anyways, um, not to go too off, not to go too far down that path. But I just think like, when, when you see that art, I think that passion for me, I always am really drawn to that. Like they're in it for the reasons of like, they want to make the music. I believed in this movie that everybody here was in it for the reasons that they wanted to really just create this like beautiful music and create something unique and be known. And then maybe to tie it into some of the other themes from the movie, they also was really important for them to be connected to their culture in a way that maybe they weren't allowed to be otherwise, right? Like it actually had an element of like, when they were living in London, they were not recognized as Jamaican. They were not recognized as uh, people that you know uh, were this Rastafarian culture. At least there was no respect tied to that. Um, and so they they used this music as then a way to escape and and feel like connect with themselves in a very authentic way. Um, speaking about the the ills of consumerism and 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 the problems from Babylon, 
Um, I like to talk about collection corner now and the things I'm spending money on. Um, the, <laughs> uh, and the things that we're all spending money on. So this, this is kind of a, you know, March is where I think a lot of these labels start to turn up the, the sales and start to get, want that cash starting to flow back in. So there's, I feel like, I don't know how y'all, but I feel like in the last two weeks, there's been so many sales, flash sales from Criterion, you know, vinegar syndrome had their package. That's normal, but um, they had um, uh, a big one from another big sale from Kino. And then there was, anyways, there's one more uh, kind of major one, but yeah, it feels like there's, there's people trying to take advantage of this kind of March timeframe, getting ready for the rest of the year. Um, I'm, I'm really excited for what Vinegar Syndrome is doing. I know I've said this before, uh, but if you look at the movies that are coming out from their March um, releases, uh, you know, it like there's a bunch of movies that are just very exciting coming out. So um, Yellow Veil, this 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 company that's putting out a lot of foreign kind of like new horror movies um, has a film coming out called The Long Walk, which is supposed to be excellent. And then um, uh, this this Canadian International Pictures, they have that release called The Other French New Wave with a beautiful cover. Have you all seen that cover? I've thought of cover. Yeah, it looks it looks pretty, really nice. Yeah, so a lot of respect being paid towards those movies coming out in the 60s. Um, Pathogens coming out from, from Agfa. Have either one of y'all seen that movie? I haven't seen it. I know what it is, but I haven't watched it. I, yeah, I haven't seen it either, but it's interesting. Like it was, I think it was a 12 or 13-year-old that, that wrote it and, and made it. Um, and so it's in, But it's a pretty gruesome horror movie, I think, so that's it's kind of fun. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see that one. Anyways, I could go on and on. Um, I, I just love that their partner labels are stepping up in a big way uh, and having some very exciting releases. And then I think we might've even talked about this in the, um, uh, a little bit on the episode where we talked about Spirited Away. But, you know, when you start getting main titles like um, Schizoid, you know, with Klaus Kinski, X-Ray, which is an underrated, really fun. Um, slash Super excited for that, yeah. Right? Uh, I, you know, just kind of geeking out about Hard Rock Zombies and Slaughterhouse Rock. Those are fun, really kind of, you know, obscure um, rock and roll horror movies. <laughs> there was like that little genre that was there for a while. Um, and then Reform School Girls is like the, you know, like the art house darling of the um, women in prison movies. And it's this Tom Simone is, uh, you know, a respected director and Anyways, it's yeah, like I just I think that they just Vinegar Syndrome just teased their um, halfway to Black Friday sale. Apparently, there's going to be some massive, really well-known titles there. So I feel like, you know, they've they've kind of come full circle now and or, or come into their own a little bit. And they started out making a lot of VHS era classics. And and there was the lesser known films in that, which they've kind of focused on for a long time. And now I feel like they're getting more into the like more and more, you know, well-known movies. So I can't, I don't know. I just can't wait to see what Vinegar Syndrome does as they continue to grow and have money to support them. Um, so that's one that I've been collecting. And then the other thing I'll talk about is the, uh, very quickly is the Criterion Flash Sale. Um, so that was a fun one for me. Uh, I, I wound up getting about 10 movies this time all in. Um, and it was it was a chance for me to kind of fill up my catalog a little bit. Did y'all partake in the flash sale? No, I have uh, 
well, when I get to mine, I have something expensive coming in, so I had to refrain. Oh, nice. I can't because Criterion are dicks and don't ship us out of the U.S. So. Oh, that's unfortunate. Oh, that's why you give your coupon away sometimes, right? For those things. Yeah, because Criterion themselves, it's fine. Like during the Barnes and Noble sales, Amazon will like price match, so I can go on there then. But when it's, I can never buy directly from Criterion because they just don't. They just refuse to ship internationally. Um, hopefully, Which sucks, I'd like to support them. You know, but no. Yeah, um, that's too bad. Uh, this one I picked up. Uh, I'll just I'll just quickly touch on it then, since I don't want to rub it in. <laughs> um, but uh, Duvivier film, Pepe Lamoco, a Lubitsch film, Trouble in Paradise, um, uh, a Bresson film, uh, La Dame de Bois de Boulogne. I don't know exactly the best way to say that. Yeah, Artificial Eye released that one here. Actually, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Night and Fog, which have you all seen that? It's about. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't seen it. It's Rene, isn't it? Alain, Alain Rene? Yeah, I believe so. It's, it's the one that's, I actually don't know the director on that, um, which is kind of weird, but. I'm 99% sure it's, it's Rene. Yeah, the guy who it's did. the one about um, the Holocaust. Yeah, it's the guy who did Hiroshima, Mon Amour. Okay. Um, yeah, anyways, it's a beautiful movie. I'm, I'm just kind of embarrassed. I don't know the uh, director, but uh, yeah, Alain Rene. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, a, it's a very heartbreaking movie, but uh, an important one, I guess, to speak. So, yeah. That, that's me. That's what I've been collecting. What about y'all? Uh, um, mine's I, pretty, I, oh, I think both of ours are quick. You can go ahead. I think both of ours are quick. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, look, my, mine is quick because I don't really have anything that I've brought in recently that I think is worth really talking about. Just been picking up things here or there. So I'm going to default to something that I always default to when I have nothing to talk about. And uh, luckily enough, Indicator have helped me out by last week announcing Columbia Noir number five. I think I've talked about every Columbia Noir release so far on this podcast. So if it's not broken, don't fix it. So Columbia Noir number five uh, was just announced. It's going to be released in June and it's subtitled Humphrey Bogart. So it's kind of really interesting because so far, you know, the Columbia Noir, you know, one to four, they've all been, you know, just a pretty random collection of films. Whereas this one is specifically um, sort of focused and geared towards Humphrey Bogart. So there's six films included, one of which I'm super excited about. And there's one that I'm really, I feel like indicator are cheating. So um, there's Dead Reckoning, which is by a dude called John Cromwell, not familiar with. The one I'm really excited about is Knock on Any Door because it's directed by Nicholas Ray. So we know we're Nick Ray fans on this podcast, hence the name of the podcast. Uh, Tokyo Joe by a dude called Stuart Heisler, Sirocco by a dude called Curtis Bernhardt. And then there's the one that's cheating, which is called The Family Secret by Henry Levin. Do you know, do you guys know why I think it's cheating? Why? Humphrey, Bo- Humphrey Bogart's not in the movie. It was, <laughs> it was he made, produce it? <laughs> not really. It was made by his production company. Oh, geez. So, <laughs> <laughs> They're like, um, we need one more. Yeah, so basically they, they must have just like shit, we need one more film. We need to try and tenuously connect us to Bogey any way we can. And the last one is one he is in called The Heart of They Fall by a dude called Mark Robson. So um yeah, you know, I'm uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the Colombian war sets. I've obviously been a big big supporter of Indicator in general on this podcast. Uh, something that I hope to address 
uh, quite personally soon. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> hintedy, hinted, hint about a future episode, perhaps. Um, but yeah, Columbia Door number five is going to be out in June. It'll be a it'll be a day one buy for me. I haven't pre-ordered it yet, but it will be when I get paid. So, uh, yeah, realistically, how many more of these do you think they're going to be able to squeeze out? Ah, uh, well, if we're if if there are other sort of sort of uh, volumed sets like um, had the hammer sets and stuff for anything to go by, just pretty much any of them they can get their hands on. Mm-hmm. I don't really see it ending, and because. You know, there's probably hundreds of these films where it would have been produced throughout like the the 40s, 50s, hundreds and hundreds of these movies would have been produced. Like these are all mainly B pictures that they've been putting out so far. Like one or two have been films that are that do have a lot of sort of recognition after the fact, but they all like would have been like B pictures. So it just depends on how many survived and they can get a decent um restoration of really. So yeah. You know. Can I just very, very, uh, uh, without any spoilers, give just give a little bit of insight into what's coming. So um, part of Indicator being so gracious and allowing us to do an interview with them coming up, they wanted to have a preliminary conversation just to kind of get to know us and, and just make sure, I think, just kind of check on how the interview is going to go, some of those kind of things. Uh, and they tease something, which I know is okay to talk about, and I'll kind of tease here. Um, there, there may be another uh, box set or two from Columbia Noir, but before the year is over, they're gonna have a new series with a different studio that they've just signed the rights to, and they're and they're actively producing. And so, uh, he said, for fans of Columbia Noir, it's gonna be a very exciting announcement. And I can't say any more, obviously, because Indicator is always very tight-lipped of their uh, their releases. Um, but uh, I'll just kind of leave that out there as a, as a teaser. Uh, maybe we can get into it a little bit more when we record. That interview should drop in late April, I think, by the way, in terms of timing for, for when that's going to uh, actually be heard. Good deal. Yeah, what about you, Zach? Um, so um, this year is the 50th anniversary of the first Godfather film. So as expected, Paramount is doing their 4K release, which kind of everyone saw coming once they started doing 4k and it was like well it's year 47 they'll wait three more years to do the 4k and they were right on the money there um but they're putting out two box sets this year uh one is a standard box set for the 4k and then one's a collector's edition i have the collector's edition coming in i have a lot of love for the first two films um i'll actually be seeing the 50th anniversary um new restoration very early april so a couple weeks from now i'll be seeing it in theaters for the first time um great box set though it comes in this like faux leather um size of like a record like if you had a record set real thick um tall wide um and it comes with like three prints one from each movie of uh, i think two of them or one is for the first one's for marlon brando's Vito corleone and then the second one is um robert de niro's robert uh, Vito corleone and then it's michael from the third movie that's that exists um but they're great looking prints. They put a lot of work into them. Um, gonna have all the 4K releases. They even put both the new cut of Godfather 3 in 4K and the theatrical cut in um, 4K, which the thing that was kind of interesting there is you can kind of see where Coppola, how he feels, because the theatrical 4K is now just on the bonus disc. And the when you go into the main part for the third one, it's going to just be his new cut. 
Wow. Um, which isn't even significantly different. It's slightly different beginning, slightly different end, and a couple scenes cut here and there. I mean, it's a better movie in comparison. <laughs> but you can't really take out a lot of the issues of the third film, even though it's not like awful. It's not an awful movie. It's just comparing to the first two Godfather films, it's kind of meh. <laughs> Uh, but I, I'm super excited to get it. It looks like a great set. Um, that should be here Tuesday. So I'll have to try to restrain myself from not watching it immediately since I'll be going to the theater in two weeks. That sounds great, though. That's cool. I'll have to check that out. You said it's from Paramount? Yeah, it's, um, if you look it up, like I said, the one I'm getting is the collector's edition. Um, it's a five-disc set, I think. Because I believe it's all, each movie has its own 4K. And then there's two bonus discs, maybe. So, is this the yeah. set where they do the 4K and the Blu-ray together, or just is just only only original? overseas? Uh, the U.S. is only getting a 4K. Okay. Yeah. So it's um yeah it's a nine disc set I think overseas. Oh wow. Okay. All right, and welcome back. Now we're going to be discussing Rainier Werner Fassbender's uh, 1974 film Ali Fear Eats the Soul. A, lon a lonely widow meets a much younger Arab worker in a bar during a rainstorm. They fall in love to their own surprise, to the outright shock of their families um, and colleagues and drinking buddies. So um, this is kind of going more of our theme, what we're talking about. This one adds a little bit too. So while we'll be talking about, of course, the racism aspect. Also, I think there should be an interesting discussion on age differences in relationships. So um, let's go with Chris. What did you think? Yeah, man. Um, so this, the, the world has this as the 142nd best movie of all time. Um, it's, a, it's always interesting for me. I don't know how y'all feel, but when it's a quiet movie in the sense of from a production standpoint, there's not a ton going on, right? It's a very, it's almost documentary style in the shooting. Um, it's minimal, I guess. Maybe it's a better word than quiet, but I mean, it's kind of a minimal shoot with a few actors not you know uh, uh not telling a grand tale but telling like a very simple story i think for the movie to catch the attention of critics in that way it has to be doing something extremely powerful from a storytelling perspective or maybe unique from a storytelling perspective and i think this film does that for me it's uh i i don't have a ton of experience to fassbender i've maybe seen six or seven of his movies um but He's a very, he, you know, he's, he's another one of these guys I was kind of talking earlier about liking rebel music. I think he's a little bit of a rebel filmmaker. Like, I think he's very much his own. He's very much an auteur. Um, you, you're able to get, you, you know, it's a fast bender movie uh, within, you know, 20 minutes of 10 minutes of turning it on. Um, and I think this one is maybe one of his most well, uh, for, for like, like, best movies from a production standpoint, not just not focusing on the story for, for a second, but the production value is extremely high here. Really good cinematography, even though it's again, it's minimalist in the, in the way it's shot. Um, and I, but I think that the thing that draws people to this and certainly what draws me to it is the fact that this couple gets together despite the eyes telling you for a lot of different reasons that they're not a fit. Um, I don't even, we can get into this. I don't even know if it's, because we all have biases internally or something. I mean, maybe, but I don't even know if that's the point. I think it's more around just like, if you create a story where there's no 
physical reason, you know, why this couple should work, um, then you're able to do more interesting things with the story by making it seem natural that they connect and by not really focusing too much of the story on the fact that they're together, but rather like all the other things that kind of happen around them when they are, when they do get together. And I think that's one thing that I, I love about his, is he just sort of goes with it. He's like, yeah, this couple just gets together. And, you know, um, so it's shot, it's shot as a fact. There's no, fact. yeah, it's just a fact that they are together. Um, a lot of the times, as you said, in these kind of films, there's always the question mark from a filmmaking point of view, like, how am I going to display the question mark around why yeah. they're together? But with this, it's not done like that. It's just, it's a fact that they're together. And the rest of the film has to then deal with that fact. They, they, they have a one night stand, <laughs> which is also just interesting. It presented as fact. And then they, they wind up sort of falling for each other. So um, a lot to get into. That's my intro kind of thoughts, I guess. Um, what, what about y'all? Uh, this is my second time seeing this film. Um, I did watch it. I know a lot of times I skip uh our film club picks when i've seen them before because i like to have a week off but i did purposely rewatch this one and um, because it had been a while since i'd seen it admittedly probably about about 18 months to two years and i remember really liking it and i wanted to revisit it and i really liked it again um i think it's a as you said it's a very sparse film um there's not a lot of bells and whistles going on but it works but I also don't think it's as simplistic as we as we might sort of chalk it down to on first watch. Um, Fassbender is very deliberate in how he films certain certain scenes. You know, he does accentuate isolation by having sometimes characters shot, you know, quite isolated in the frame. Like when Emmy first sits at the bar when she comes in from the range, she's very isolated in the frame. And then other times, you know, they're very close quarters, like in her apartment, which is very cramped, you know. So I do think it's very deliberate in how we film scenes, but just it's not very, not very sort of, not a lot of bells and whistles on it. Um, I also find Vassbinder a very interesting figure. I've actually only ever seen two of his films. This one, which I loved, and then I, I got a release back before Arrow started doing all their box sets. They had like individual discs for a lot of his films. And one of them was an early Fassbinder set and I had like three of his films. And I watched the first one from that, which is Love is Colder Than Death. And that film fucking sucks so bad. It's so, it's awful. It's a terrible film. It's like a student film trying to like, it's, it's, it's like a film made by someone, a student who liked Goddard way too much. Um, but it, so I, I hadn't really watched any of his other films since then, but he was an extremely interesting figure. You know, he died at like 37 or something. Yeah. So he's really young, but like in that time, he made like over 40 movies, a couple of TV shows, tons of plays. Um, like I said, he was definitely a rebellious figure. You know, he didn't confirm to norms. He was a big drug user. He was a, he was bisexual. Like, did you guys know that he was in a relationship with the guy who played Ali when they were yeah. making this movie? Yeah. So yeah, that that was him and him and Fassbender were, were in a romantic relationship at the time of this filming. Um, and unfortunately, the guy who played Ali actually died a couple of years later um, after they had sort of split up. Um, so, yeah, I found Fassbender a very interesting figure. I need to watch more of his films because I would assume most of them are more closer to quality than Ali is versus maybe Love is Colder Than Death. Um, but yeah, I, I love this film. I think it's I think it's a masterpiece. 
So um, for me, uh, Chris, I know you said you've only seen a few. So it sounds like in this podcast, you are going to be the uh, the go-to on the answers of Fassbender. This is the first one of his I've ever seen. Um, it's the only time. I, he's one of those filmmakers I've heard quite a bit about. Uh, but it's kind of weird. Like I knew his name. I've heard of him in film circles. But I couldn't tell you a single movie he made. I had heard of like uh, Eight Hours Don't Make a Day and yeah, World on Wire. Yeah, I've heard series. of his TV stuff. But when I was yeah. going through his thing, I was like, I've never heard of his really a lot of his movies. So first uh, impressions with him kind of in general. Um, the, I don't know if all of his stuff is like this, but I, I really liked the simplicity of the camera movement. Like, yeah. Like it, it, it's not boring. It's not in the state that it's just completely stationary, but it's incredibly simple. Like it does a lot with very little. Like just and you know those small movements that do make it brings attention to itself, but it feels so simple. So I thought that was really cool from that kind of standpoint. And I, I'm kind of curious if all of his stuff is like that. Um, as far as the movie itself goes, I think it's I think it's interesting that when you you're going to talk about something because obviously. I mean, obviously to me, um, a lot of this is about loneliness and, you know, that the looking into that, you know, I think a lot of people get with people because of loneliness. And, you know, I think the focus on that being that while everyone else's focus is on, they're not a good match. They, they're not the same age. They're two different cultures. They're, they grew up in two completely different eras, um, you know, that's going to be the focus for everyone else. But for them, it's just this idea of we both have suffered the same sense of loneliness, even if it's in different ways. Um, and that's kind of their mending point, I guess. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the other stuff brings up, like, especially the age thing brings up a good thing. Obviously, they're both adults. They both have a right to be who they want to be. But, you know, and that's kind of a thing. I don't know if it's everywhere in the world, but especially here in the U.S., I deal with it, you know, going back to working with kids, you know, I have 17 year old kids dating 14 year old kids and, you know, they're about to turn 18. That kid's going to be 15 and that becomes a huge issue. Um, and this is a, on the other end of that. Sure. They're both matured and adults, but can two people like that really ever be with one another in that sense of way? Will they ever fully understand each other and have enough to talk about coming from such different backgrounds and i think that's the interesting discussion you know they find solace in the company while everyone else kind of sees the outwardness of it so i thought it was pretty cool i thought it was really neat um it's uh, a little bit uh, depressing towards the end but i liked it <laughs> really quick since we're talking about fassbender um in a weird way one of the most interesting films i think that shows a lot about Fassbender and like the scene that he was in and, and, and really kind of leading in a lot of ways. I think it was called New German Cinema. I Forgive me, I'm not great with like movements, but I think that's what it was called. Yeah, that would have been the same that like Finn Benders and uh, Herzog would have all come through the new, new German Cinema. Okay, great. So one of the other people from that group was the director and actor and just sort of talent called Uli Lomel. And he directed a movie in 73, which was a year before this, called Tenderness of the Wolves. And it explores bisexuality, but the, the, it's, a, it's a Jack the Ripper movie. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and it's, uh, it, it, uh, it's a very weird movie. <laughs> um, definitely not for under 18. Um, 
or definitely R-rated, if not more, in terms of some of the violence it shows. Um, it's, a, it's a crazy movie. It was an Arrow release, if that gives any indication. You know, Arrow likes to kind of push some of the, or especially early Arrow, they like to push some of the, uh, the, bound, the what's comfortable there. Uh, the film certainly fits into that, but Fassbender's an actor in the movie, and it explores a lot around bisexuality uh, in a very matter-of-fact way. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty metaphor. Uh, beautiful metaphor set in a very kind of exploitation heavy uh, violent movie so um, anyways the special features give a lot of background into the movement and stuff it was a really cool movie and, a, and an even better set of supplements um, that gives some background into all that so there's a well, there's a point there um, it's called tenderness of the wolves as for this movie I like the point that you brought up around loneliness that's interesting as a reason why they would connect yeah, you know, that really that really kind of resonates with me, I think, because even if you look at, so one of the things I thought was most interesting about the character of Ali, um, whose real name, hold on, I had it up and then I changed talking about Tenderness of the Wolves. What's his, um, if y'all can get there before me, what's his actual name? Uh, See, uh, IMDb just has him as Ali, so it doesn't. No, it's El, El Hedi bin Salim. Thank you. And I think that was his name in real life, right? Yes, that's his real okay. name. Yeah, that's the, well. Sorry, that's what that's what what you were asking. That is the both the actor and Ali's real name. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, there was a scene. So there's no real like spoilers, right? It's okay if we just kind of talk openly about the movie. Yeah. Okay. So there's a scene at the end, near the end, where he starts to cheat on his wife. Now, this older woman who uh, he meets at the bar you know, very much, I think, set up as a grandma. Like there's nothing really youthful about her. She doesn't have, it's not like she has a lot of plastic surgery to look younger. Like she's, she's a grandma, right? And um, part of her loneliness comes from her family moving on and not having a great relationship with her and these things. And so they get married and then he starts to have an affair with one of the women from the bar, one of the women from the bar. And there's a scene where he like slaps his head and beats himself up and is basically like, come on, like, you're better than this. Like, like you need to recognize your true love. And he goes, and I, I didn't know where he was going to go, but he goes back to the woman, his, his wife. And I thought that was so interesting because I, I, that's just not really how I expected the story to go. Like, I think it's more natural to assume that he has an affair with this woman who's closer in age, seems to kind of understand him culturally. She knows how to make couscous, right? All like, about the couscous. If only... <laughs> If only Emmy had just made him some damn couscous, none of this would have happened. Right. Um, but he's a man of integrity. And I think the way he's portrayed is like he sees himself as a man of integrity and he has made a commitment to this woman, his wife, and he goes back to her and they, they work on their, or, or he rekindles that with her, you know, make apologizes and, and rekindles that obviously before it turns again. But anyways, I think my point is just, that was a bit of a surprise for me. Uh, in that moment and I was trying to figure out what are his motivations and I wonder it might be loneliness I, you know or maybe we're not supposed to know I mean if we're just supposed to believe this is true love and, and he's just learning how to love this woman I don't know but I, I anyways I like the idea of loneliness kind of being a reason why he feels that connection to her and maybe where that at least initiates from yeah and you kind of bring up the the way I kind of see that scene where he's with the person who's younger than him, you know, understands him a little bit better. It almost feels pressured for him. Like he feels like he needs to do this because that's what everyone else is telling him. 
Oh, you know, that, that, yeah. that's the that's the kind of what he goes through every day is hey this is you know when you get told something every day hey this isn't going to work this isn't going to work I think in, at least part of you starts to believe that or you work towards that realization because that's what everyone else thinks and I think that that's part of it for him is he has this connection but he feel like well maybe I can you know have this connection somewhere else and you know not have the stigma with it as well okay so like i i totally am on board with what you said this is not a challenge to that but you just got me thinking about this now it's not like she's perfect either right no um i mean she like parades him as this like physical specimen in front of her friends right and they actually like go up and touch him and they're like wow like you know yeah she objectifies him objectifies him yeah yeah and you know and i guess that could you know i i guess it you know depends on if you're very cynical when you look at love if you're optimistic if you're somewhere in between that but you know there's always this idea you don't choose who you fall in love with you um you don't make that choice and i can't say how fast bender feels when he made this but i think there is some reality of that you know where people put up with a lot because they say i don't like that they do this i wish they would change this but i can't help but stay with them and sometimes that's for detriment that's detrimental to them but they still choose to do it and you know that that's where i think it kind of can come looking at it in a cynical way or you can look at it in an optimistic way but I, there's i'll just add that yeah like unconditional love is not always perfect um like i said there is sometimes things that, that you don't like about that other person but you can't help from having those sort of feelings um yeah, like their, their dynamic is interesting. As I sort of mentioned at the start, it's sort of, it's displayed as a fact that they are, that they are sort of together and that they have a connection, obviously on an emotional level. Um, not really sure. Like we don't, we don't really know too much about the physical aspect. Obviously, we, we, we thankfully weren't shown a sex scene <laughs> between them. Um, so we don't really know how it works on a physical level. Um, but there's definitely an, an emotional level to it. They, they, they have a deep emotional connection. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's just camaraderie. You know, she, she's interested in him. She doesn't really, even though, like we said, there is moments later in the film, especially once things get a bit more comfortable with all the neighbors, she does sort of show him off and that's kind of when he then goes towards having the affairs when she starts sort of parading him as as a kind of physical specimen or whatever which has interesting ties to to nazi past i suppose um which is brought up quite a bit throughout the film um but at the start anyway she simply just takes an interest in him and doesn't really care that you know that he's Arabic and that his German isn't perfect and you know that that he's much younger than her neither of them really care that much because they just they get on very well I don't know like I, I have that relationship with, with some of my friends where we don't really have a ton in common outside of you know we don't really have the same interests like one, one of like my probably my best friend we don't really have the same interests we don't listen to the same music we don't really have anything in common hobby wise or job wise but we just get on very well together when we're in a room we just riff off each other very well and we always have and i feel like this that's the kind of relationship that emmy and ali have they just get each other on a sort of non-superficial level they just they just get each other yeah i i agree completely with that and one thing i do want to bring up because you did bring up the hitler thing 
I don't know why, but the part where she mentions this was Hitler's favorite restaurant when they go to that Italian place, I think is the funniest bit of the movie. Yeah, because I'm weird, like that is just so that sort of um that that hangover that Nazi hangover, especially because obviously a lot of the characters we meet are quite older, so they would have grown up, you know, in the Nazi era. Emmy herself mentions that her father was part of the party. You know, he was a good Nazi. Um, you know, he's a good party member. You know, so I think she says that specifically something along those lines. So that kind of that kind of hangover from Nazism, it could even be a display of guilt as to why she you know, wants to treat Ali so well, it literally could be sort of leftover Nazi guilt over what sort of happened during that era with, with you know, with, with the racism and stuff like that. You all got me thinking, I'm loving this discussion. Um, what, what if, okay, bear with me, it, it'll be quick. What if this is all a metaphor, right? I, this is one thing I'm learning through the Jodorowsky films I watched last year, the Fellini films I watched, sometimes, you know, these, these artists like to use metaphor, right? A lot. Um, Cause she's, she's representing, she, she could represent, she, she's not fully German, right? She's Polish, I think, or something, but it's even brought up the fact that a few times that she's not even fully German herself. Yeah. Right? Going by her surname, Karofsky, I would assume Polish or something. Eastern something Europe or something. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like an immigrant as well, but she's a more accepted immigrant, maybe because of her skin color or maybe her German is a little better or something. Um, and her kids are certainly, you know, they're like, they're probably German, like each generation probably becomes more and more German, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then Ollie is represents a lot of things that are brand new, like a new Germany almost, right? Like, a, like, so she, she could, rep, she sort of is like a metaphor for like old Germany, both the fact that she's older, but also just sort of like her views, the views of her friends, especially like her peers. Uh, and maybe Ollie could represent sort of new Germany, where it's a different kind of immigration, um, a lot from the Middle East, a lot from Northern Africa. Uh, and there's a lot of tension in the country at that time, and even still today around that topic of immigration, right? And I could see this maybe be potentially being like a metaphor for like the marriage of these two cultures that doesn't make sense physically, but yet it's there as a fact. And like, and this is sort of a representation of like what that looks like as these two cultures kind of come together a little bit, told through like one story as opposed as opposed to trying to tell the whole story of like the, the country. Um, that that tension is told through like one relationship, and we get to see it play out in one relationship. Yeah, and I, I think um, one element that I think Fassbender did really well was he didn't harp on trying to explain their relationship it seems like he is just trying to just put it out there because it would just really kill the pace it's a pretty quick movie uh, all things mm-hmm. considered and it's like mm-hmm. look either you're going to accept it or you're not and if you're not then at least it'll be quick um yeah. so i think it is interesting i i like what your point is chris um that it could mean a lot because i don't know a lot about fastbender but you guys kind of talked a little bit about him um you said he was with the main actor correct yeah yeah and I, I mean, I guess there's an argument that he could be exploring that himself, like what he goes through, um, especially as a man who seems to have a lot of contradictions in his life from the little bit I did read about him. About. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I suppose the only the only thing that stops me deep diving into, you know, metaphors and stuff is the fact that, you know, this film was essentially a remake. Of a oh, I didn't realize. Okay. Did you guys know that? I did not. You guys, anyone seen All That Heaven Allows? 
from Douglas Sark. Oh. It's in the Criterion Collection. No, but I, now, now that you say that, I remember reading a little bit about that. I forgot about that. Okay. Yeah, no, it doesn't have the racial aspect. It's basically Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson get together, and Jane Wyman's older than Rock Hudson. Now, I haven't seen all that Heaven Allows, so I don't know how much of the other stuff that we see in the film translates around, you know, people... I assume people disapprove of their relationship in this in Hall that Heaven allows as well. The whole point is that, you know, love is love or whatever. Um, so, but uh, but I, I agree with you on the racial aspects of it. So obviously in All That Heaven Allows and Jane Wyman or Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson, they're obviously both white Americans, you know, so that's not going to really play a part in that film. So I, I agree with you with the racial aspects absolutely could be, you know, uh, some kind of commentary, social commentary on, you know, the changing Europe that happened in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, where, and Babylon kind of speaks to this as well, I suppose, where places that were traditionally white mm-hmm. now have to learn to live in a more multicultural and more multiracial world. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy for some people, you know, people, you know, you know, that's when racists and stuff lean their head in. And, but it's just showing that, you know, it's a fact it's here it's something that you have to live with and get on with and i suppose ali does kind of show that in maybe a more cynical way because people do start accepting um ali ash but you know at their own sort of you know they have their own ulterior ulterior motives like the shopkeeper is missing emmy's business so so he starts being nice to emmy again because he wants her business back her friends start being nice to her again because they need help with moving stuff and they know Ali's a big, strong guy. Her son is suddenly now very accepting of Ali because she need, he needs Emmy to start minding their child or her grandchild. Right. So right. everyone has their own, everyone wants their peace. Everyone has their own ulterior motive to accepting them, but it's a step in the right direction in one way, um, even if it's not perfect. Um yeah, I'm not, I, the age aspect of it, I'm not fully convinced is a metaphor purely because that's, that's, that's lifted verbatim from the Douglas Sirk film. Okay. I'm not a big Douglas Sirk fan, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I prefer, I prefer this. Um, so you're telling me not to be in a rush and watch this on the channel? Uh, I know some people love them um like it's it's very much a, they're melodramas and that's what the mm-hmm. Cirque was known for he was known for his melodramas um the one i've seen was magnificent obsession which again was was jane wyman and rock hudson they seem to be like the two that he worked with a lot um i wasn't a big fan of it personally i'm not in any rush to see it anymore i really struggle with hollywood melodramas i've been avoiding his movies i know i'll get around to him one day but it's like my least favorite i like, know a lot of people love him but yeah, I, I agree it's that's not really my cup of tea that's what i liked about ali is that it had everything but it, it didn't have the melodrama you know yeah. it, was, it was all very it was told with a with a sense of verite with, with truth rather than truth, 24 frames a second exactly <laughs> <laughs> okay so just just really quick i think uh just you know, to end, I thought it was one thing I did really like about the movie as well is the title of the movie is Fear Eats the Soul, right? And that's a theme that Ollie brings up. It's like apparently like a, a well-known um, like idiom or, or, or saying in his country um, or in Arabic culture. And, and then he ends up with something physically eating his body from the inside, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, 
And I just think that's worth calling out as like a nice artistic touch. Um, Cause at first I was a little confused as to what, like what's the point of the story from, why include his illness like in the movie and like what that kind of meant. But I think it's just to show maybe a physical, I don't know if you have a different interpretation or, but the best I could come up with was just like, it's a physical manifestation of what Fassbender was trying to show through a lot of the movie, which is like how much of, of this guy's life is lived is, is coming from fear. Um, yeah. It's a bit on the nose for me. It's very much a jigsaw puzzle images oh we have to get kind images of, here kind of thing it's a little bit on the nose for me um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give out a better anything like that i it's i suppose it's fun it's it's nice to put these little these little motifs in um it's a little bit on the nose for me but yeah i get why you know i get the decision uh, now to wrap things up, we are going to go through any other business, which regular listeners will know, just a part of the podcast where we just talk about something that we've seen recently that we want to throw a big shout out to. Um, I'm going to go first with mine because um, it's kind of topical. Um, it's a new release, which is odd for me. I don't really get to see new releases quite a lot. But I watched The Batman. I watched The Batman yesterday, um, the, the Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson vehicle. Um. I think this is one of the most overhyped films in recent memory. A lot of people talk this film up like, <laughs> and I, I thought it was like, it's good. Like I rated it four stars, you know, it's a good film and all, but geez Louise, it's, it's very overhyped. I didn't think it was that good. Um, I know you've seen it, Zach. Um, but like, yeah, like, look, Pattinson's Batman is cool. He's very sort of gritty, a bit naive, beats crap out of people. That's all nice. That's cool. Film maybe is a bit dark, kind of not dark tonally. I mean dark visually. Um, it it seems the sun never shines in Gotham at all. It's permanently either nighttime or overcast there. Um, <laughs> nothing ever seems to happen during the daylight. Um, so the film's a bit dark visually for my taste. But um, Paul Dano is awesome as the he writer. always is. He's yeah, he's a great actor. Um, but he's he's genuinely. I never thought I'd be scared of Paul Dano. Because he just doesn't have that kind of face. I never thought I would be intimidated by Paul Dano. But um he really, he really um he really gets into it. I read I read a a thing online that said he like went onto like incel forums to help get into character and he only had to be on there for like a couple of hours to get what he needed for the role. It's probably all he could take. He's like, you know what, I'm good. Yeah, yeah I, I think he just went onto like 4chan for a couple of hours and like that was all he needed for like <laughs> to, to prepare uh, for his role. But yeah, he was awesome. Pattinson is a good Batman. His Bruce Wayne is like non-existent. Like, I think that's by design, though, I will say that like, I think the biggest point is that he doesn't have like this divide between Bruce Wayne and Batman. Like I think he has a no very important part. Him. But I have, I think he is I think it's a very important part of his character. This you know the fact that and I think this is even sort of mentioned at some point, but the fact that Bruce Wayne is the mask and the Batman is the true persona, but he never really wears the Bruce Wayne mask. You know, he shows up to the funeral of the of the mayor you know, looking all emo and mopey and <laughs> doesn't really do any. Yeah. I think that I thought, I thought that was very underdeveloped, the Bruce Wayne side of things, mm-hmm. but you know, I, yeah, the film is largely good. It was entertaining. Um, the score is basically in uh, the Imperial March, but slowed down. So I don't care much for the score. 
Um, I don't care much for hearing Nirvana five times <laughs> in a film. Uh, the same Nirvana song over and over again. But I do think yeah, they could know, have like used all apologies at some point and like replaced one of them. Yeah, try to keep Nirvana. Point. Yeah, no, look, it's it's fine. You know, I'm not gonna. It's not a bad film. I would. I'm not gonna come in and say that it's definitely not a bad film. It's definitely the better, probably the best, maybe of the DC movies. I haven't seen. Admittedly, I haven't seen Zack Snyder's Justice League. I know you like that one, Zach. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen that because I can't stomach. A Zack Snyder film for that long. Um, I don't, I just physically don't think I could sit through it. What is it like five hours or something? Some yeah, that's right. Like that? Four. I, I, yeah, I don't think I could stomach that to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, Batman, it's fine, but it's very, it's, it's overhyped. I'm sorry to say. I, I will say I enjoyed it, uh, quite a bit though. I did notice, and I think a lot of it had to do with being in a crowded theater because, of course, now theaters are getting more crowded again. Yeah. And so you're there with an audience. And so I saw it opening weekend. And that, I think that does make a big difference. Um, I did go see it again, like, I don't know, like a week later. Mm-hmm. And my, my rating tempered a bit. I think I gave it a four and a half on Letterboxd and I dropped it to a four. Because it, it is good. And I, I, there's a lot of things Matt Reeves did that I think was great. I think um, I'm going to be a G. Kino fan forever because he did the score for Lost. And I could hear like some of the score from Lost in there. So that's always going to be get bonus points for me. Uh, but beyond that, I, I like how he created Gotham. I thought that was the best Gotham has done since looked and actually felt like a city that wasn't Chicago since, I don't know, what, Batman Returns? Yeah. It kind of felt like its own thing. So that and um, and I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it. I like John uh, Totoro. I think it's how you say his last name. Yeah, John Totoro. Yeah, he was good. Yeah, he did great. He, he was good he was great in the role. Yeah, he was good. He was. I, 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 when I came out of it, me, me and Neve saw it yesterday. And we were kind of talking about what we liked about it, and I said he was he was he was very good as a as a sort of mafioso. You don't really get to see him play that kind of role very often. Um, he's never really like a it tells me you need to watch Miller's Crossing. Yeah, I was about okay. to say you have to go well, back. Yeah, to haven't yeah. seen haven't seen Miller's Crossing, so maybe I do have to go see it then because I I've never seen him in that kind of role before. He's always yeah, I think you'll, if you like either... him in this, it's a different type of mafia thing, but he's really good in that too. So okay, well, I'll add that to my list then because I need to watch more Coens anyway. So how was um, how was Gollum as uh, Alfred? I liked him. He wasn't really in I, it. A he, lot. He's not he in it a lot. Yeah, he's not in it a lot. He's fine. You know, he's 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 fine. He he's not in anything. it enough to say if he's bad or not, but he was fine. Yeah, he didn't say anything was as precious. No, <laughs> sadly not. not. Like the I, I think he was or... just excited not to be in like mocap or in makeup for once yeah That's for sure they yeah i i don't know i'll probably see that one when it comes on video one day or something i'm, I'm yeah, like, it's a, it's a, it, it might be pretty it's a long movie it's three hours and it, it does hours, feel yeah. it at times like i like the pacing if it doesn't mean you don't feel it any less yeah okay how about you zach um, so just to keep the train of new releases, um, Thursday night, uh, I went to the first preview I have went to in quite a while. Um, of course, with COVID being here since last two years, it's been a little tough, but I got to, um, uh, Stoke for Ty West, uh, to give a little background. I don't know how familiar everyone here is with Ty West or the audience is. Um, I, I became a fan of his years ago when he came out with, um, his VHS segments, which I think are some of the best in that. And then he did a movie called House of the Devil, 
uh, which is a phenomenal movie. Um, really great at getting an 80s aesthetic. He went from there and did The Innkeepers, which is good. And then he did a found footage movie called The Sacrament, which is just the retelling of Jonestown, but changed the names. It's fine. It, but it was the last horror movie he did, and that was in 2013. From listening to him, it sounds like he had difficulties making more horror movies. He kind of came in that Adam Wingard era where you had your next and the guest. And of course he went on to do Godzilla versus Kong. And he was in, he was in your next, wasn't he? Didn't he act? Yeah. Ty next? West is uh, one yeah. of the spoiler. He's the first person killed in the house. <laughs> um, but yeah, he has a small role in it. Um, so he came from that era, but he never really captured the audience, like a huge audience like Winger did. I think, you know, when you look at your next, it was a huge success. It was a big movie where while horror fans love house of the devil, it didn't get that recognition. And I think that made a big difference, but um, he had wrote uh, his new movie X first horror movie in nine years um, and sent it to a 24 and said, I don't know if it's you guys thing, but if it is, give me a call and we'll see what we can do. It was kind of his last hurrah to try to get back into horror. And obviously they made it. Um, and the film is about these six people who want to go make an adult porn, an adult film. So they go rent a, a uh, farmhouse and it turns into a slasher film. So pretty standard setup, very Texas chainsaw in a lot of ways. It is so good. Like this is the highest rating I know I've personally given a film since Parasite came out. Um, it's so straightforward. Like I think a lot of people are going to look at A24 and say, ah, oh, it's going it, to, it's about as straightforward as it gets. It, it says it's a slasher movie. It, that is honest to God what it is. It's a slasher movie. It ticks all the right boxes for me. It's got the 70s aesthetic. It takes place in 1979. Um, it's a stylish slasher movie. His shots look gorgeous. Um, he knows how to build tension really well with them. He uses a lot of wide angles, which you don't see a lot in slasher films. Um, he takes his time. I think, Adam, you've seen House of the Devil. He's very yeah. low paced. Meticulous. Yes. It's an hour of basically a adult comedy, almost like Boogie Nights in a sense. So you get very graphic sex scenes, like pushing the edge of our rating about as much as you can. So if you wanted to go see this with your mom, <laughs> I would consider not doing that. But you do you. The kid I sat to the second time I saw it was a 13 year old kid with his dad. He has more courage <laughs> than I ever would. Um, but, you know, uh, you do that for an hour. And then the last 45 is your your slasher movie. And it is gory. It is violence. And it's what you want to see. It, it's it's so much fun um it's it's the best horror film i've seen of 20 in the 2020s and it's the best one i've seen in quite a while um i saw it three days straight um and i'm so glad i saw it in theaters oh nice i'm really i'm really looking forward to seeing it i was just checking to see if it found its way online yet it's i think apple is getting it april 7th from what i hear perfect that's like that sounds great to me i'll definitely watch it when it comes out because i'm not going to get a chance to go even seeing Batman yesterday for me was a stretch. I was like, uh, because it's just such a, such, I don't have a theater within drive within easy distance and we're not driving yet. So getting to the theater is kind of tricky for me. So I probably won't get a chance to see it in theater. So I'll definitely watch it when it comes out on, on digital. Yeah. And I, and I do want to like, just real quick, just say, you know, this was a movie that ticked all the boxes for me. Please don't go in thinking it's going to be the best movie you've seen in like four or five years. Cause I think I would be giving <laughs> false expectations. It was just one of those rare movies where it's like, this ticks everything I love about movies. So long so, as it's better than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then I think I'm going to be okay. I don't think that's going to be an issue. 
I really don't. If you tell me you thought Texas Chainsaw Master 2022 was better, uh, I'll be shocked. <laughs> See, the thing about Texas Chainsaw Master 2022 is that it's a shit movie, but like I had a lot of fun watching yeah, it. Yeah, I did too. Because so, I mean, it's, it's so stupid. It's the stupidest <laughs> film I've seen in a long time. It is fun. What do you got, Chris? You got something new? Uh, you got, you're going to dig in the archives here. So, well, I'm going to latch on to the three-hour uh, thing as opposed to the new thing. Okay. Okay. Um, that y'all have been going on. So, I, I yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if I can really highlight a new movie I've seen. I'm, I've been – this year for me is about getting through the 100 best Warner Brothers movies in that box set they put out. Mm. So, as I have spare moments, I've been kind of working through that. And I'm pissed because they made me sit through a three-hour, like – war brings psychological trauma movie and the only reason i'm saying it like that is because deer hunter was a was a fantastic watch right there are like really good movies that dig into like the psychological trauma of war and like how hard it is to come home and transition into real life there's really good examples of that i'm fine with the genre i love the fact they're bringing attention to it but the best years of our lives I hate that movie. <laughs> I've never even heard of it. But I'm and it's it three hours it. long. Yes. And it was like the highest grossing movie of 1946. And it was this beloved kind of thing. And, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that like the pieces of this movie are interesting. Like one of the main characters had both of his hands uh, blown off in the war and he has hooks. And so there's a storyline about him, like, like learning how to adapt to real life with his hooks and like, you know, like spilling milk and stuff and like struggling with that aspect, right? And physical, there's like a physical representation of the traumas of war, right? And then there's another guy who has more PTSD. Um, uh, and so there's pieces that are in very interesting. And I'm sure that audiences were like loving this because it was like maybe the first time that they've seen this portrayed on the screen and they were just like, yes, like, you know, coming back from World War II and, and it was just like so soon, like all that was so raw, right? So I'm sure a lot of people were going through that. So I'm sure it was a very timely movie. But the thing I don't like about it is that they did that freaking Hollywood thing that I don't like where for number one, everything wraps up nice by the end. And number two, they create story devices that are artificial just to like move the plot along. Like there's a love story blossoming, but one guy is married. So it turns out that his wife is an asshole and she divorces him so that they can get together like that kind of stuff. But it's not done in like a natural way. It's done in a very- They didn't have enough way. time to do that. Like you felt like they were three hours, they'd have plenty of time to develop whatever they wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they basically had, there's like three characters that it follows that are coming home and like it gives each of them like a lot of screen time. Um, yeah, it just oh, did not. I noticed like William Wyler did this. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, like he did Ben Hur. I know him from Ben Hur, but I was like, oh, okay, no, great. I know him from the heiress, the heiress is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, great crew. Uh, um, really, really good cast. I mean, you know, Frederick Marsh is is a great actor. Um, I'm gonna get her name wrong. Is it Myrna Loy? Yeah, I know Loy is the last name. Um, she's great, and she's good in this uh, as well. I mean, in it as well. It looks. Like. You up? Dana Andrews is in it as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. And he's he's fantastic in the movie. As like, I mean, he's a good actor. I just, I, this is what it's like. Three hours of what I don't like about old Hollywood movies, and I, the fact that it was that long as well, I just had to kind of sit there and 
just be mad at it for three hours. Um, th there's that joke. I forgot. If, I know we've talked about this the office a little bit. I always forget if y'all have seen it before, but do you remember there's that one episode where Pam and Jim are getting married and they go off to this kind of hotel mm -hmm. and, and yeah. her, her grandma is, is not, doesn't know how to work the remote. And so yeah. the TV's on and she's sitting there and she just has to like watch the TV and, one of the characters, I think it might even be Jim. Somebody comes in and helps it's her. Michael. It's Michael. Oh, Michael. That's right. Michael. He comes in and helps her. And she's like, it, I had to just sit there and let it happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's how I felt watching this movie. Um, I like the completionist side of me couldn't turn it off. But I just like read like was all the reasons why I don't like these kind of movies. And it was three hours of them. So I was super pissed. So that's, um, a, that's a nice change for any other business. Normally we hear recommending you movies. Uh, we're, Chris is now recommending you don't watch this movie. So. Don't watch the best Don't, don't take three hours of your limited time in, on this planet to watch this, apparently. <laughs> no, it's so, ironic that it's called The Best Years of Our Lives because it's, it's a few <laughs> years. Um, so before we wrap up then, do we want to talk about what we're going to be talking about coming up? Yeah, so I will just say I, I also saw the Big Sleep, and that movie is all the hype. I, that deserves all the hype. That movie was. Did amazing. you think that? I didn't think it was that great. I, I I've I, I was actually very underwhelmed when I saw the You're Big Sleep last year. I was underwhelmed. Yeah, I thought I'll watch it and it break. The tie. I haven't seen it. It was too. It was just. It was just yeah. one of those. I even the screenwriter doesn't know doesn't understand half the film. It was. I believe at one point, someone asked Raymond Chandler, who wrote the source material who killed x person because nobody could have done it and he didn't know himself that's how convoluted <laughs> the film is that they, they were just killing people for the plot but they without even thinking about who actually did it <laughs> the way that and you know howard hawks i haven't seen the movie but i, I guarantee howard hawks didn't care either he's like nope i'm not even gonna think about it <laughs> i uh, i got introduced to the character philip marlowe through the long good night or the is it long goodbye yeah long goodbye yeah. Yeah, I'm good. And so it was, it was fun stuff. just kind of comparing Humphrey Bogart to uh, Elliot Gould. Um, yeah. They, they play that character very differently. But uh, okay, so yeah, let's do this. Um, uh, here's what I'm thinking. So I want to propose this deal. One of the movies that won, we're, we're going to talk about here on, on Reddit, um, Criterion, at reddit.com backslash r backslash Criterion Conversation uh, is Blood and Black Lace. Mm -hmm. And um, so I my thought it'd off. be fun. You what? My week off. Yeah. I've already seen it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so one of the things I thought would be fun to do is a Jalo week. And yeah. obviously there's like hundreds to choose from or whatever. So I was trying to figure out how to do this. And I thought just for the sake of, uh, having like a really rich kind of fun discussion, I, I just sorted IMDB rating, uh, and blood and black lace is actually number three. I was surprised to see it wasn't number one. Uh, but I think it's just because Deep Red is uh, more well-known from a, maybe... Uh, it's Argento. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think Deep Red's a better movie, but we can discuss that when we go. So I want to propose we watch Deep Red and, and, uh, and Blood and oh Black Lake. <laughs> okay. Oh so I, I, yeah, that's, that's, that's fine by me. I, I actually yeah. always preferred The Bird of the Crystal Plumage to Deep Red. So I feel like I need to rewatch Deep Red because um, I always preferred Bird um so i actually have, i've seen both of these films as well before so um i technically could take a week off but i think i will rewatch both of them because it's been about actually a i just year, got the 4k so i'll nice. watch it nice, <laughs> nice. I, yeah i'm really, cool with those i'm cool with those yeah, yeah i really wanted fun. okay great i really wanted to do the strange vice of uh miss ward but 
Um, I don't think that's as readily available to stream, and I don't want to force y'all to have to buy the Severin. So I've never even heard of it. So yeah, it's oh, it's cool. good. Like it's I own, I own both of the films. I own Blood and Black Lace and Deep Red. So that's where that works for me. Even though I can stream, yeah, I can stream on the Arrow Player both of them. I'm pretty sure, but at yeah, the very I so. least, I own both of them as well. So that works. Yeah, they released both because yeah. I have their Steelbook for Blood and Black Lace. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, great. Cool. All in. So then. See y'all back in a few weeks uh, and uh, with you're properly scared from all this jolly. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care. Take care.